these are incredibly unpredictable and distressing times. Every nation is now caught up in the turmoil and feeling huge impacts upon their health systems, their economy, and enduring social restrictions. Sadly, death and infections continue to rise and will probably get worse before it gets better. There's a number of things that this virus and its impacts have exposed. Number one, the fear it's generated is widespread. But I'd like to make some observations about some things that this virus has highlighted to us. Number one, it's highlighted the limits of human wisdom about life and creation. That something so small as this virus, invisible to the naked eye, can be transmitted so easily and so silently is scary indeed. And we are struggling to find an antidote or a vaccine. Secondly, it's shown to us the fragility of our world economic system. It showed us how our prosperity and well-being has been built upon feet of clay. That so many lost jobs have been in non-essential areas such as tourism, fashion, retail, gambling, sport, restaurants, beauty parlours. Many of these areas have virtually disappeared. Thirdly, it's demonstrated to us the selfishness that is native to human nature, especially as what we've seen in the panic buying and hoarding. It says a lot about society that people should be so interested in themselves and not for the general good. We do fear, as is now happening in some countries like Italy, the breakdown of social order as people become desperate. And fourthly, it's emphasised to us the fragility of life. It's caused the whole world and its media to focus upon almost nothing else except the impacts of COVID-19 and the search for a vaccine and a remedy, and rightly so that they should do so. But when you think about it, with the tremendous media focus we've had upon somehow surviving this virus, how few people are interested in finding the long-term solution to human mortality. And fifthly, there is a tremendous thirst for knowledge on how to prepare to avoid COVID-19. But so little interest in preparing for the time of trouble such as never was that the Bible foretells coming in the very near future. So little interest in preparing for the wars of Armageddon and the things that will follow it. I'd like you to come with, you, with me to Matthew 24 because in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus Christ gave predictions relating to the destruction of the Jewish state that would occur in AD 70. And some 40 years before that event, he warned his disciples about the impending fall of the nation of Israel. And we have what is called the Olivet Prophecy, in which Jesus gave signs for the Jews who would listen, that they might be ready for the coming tragedy of AD 70 and the destruction of their nation and capital city. Well, those signs would include some of these things. Jesus said in verse 6, there would be wars and rumours of wars. In verse 7, famines, pestilences and earthquakes. In verse 5 and verse 24, False prophets and deceivers would abound. In verse 13, abounding iniquity would be the order of the day. In verse 9, there would be a persecution of the faithful. They would become hated of all men. 
and sadly there would be amongst those who believe Christ betrayal and stumbling as some of them would fall away from the faith. And the final sign which comes in Luke 21 was the Roman siege of AD 68. When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, you know the destruction thereof is nigh. And that siege in AD 68 was the last warning they would have. Because after that, the Romans departed for a short time for a change of emperorship in Rome. But they came back. And only those who had listened carefully to the signs and seen the signs that came to pass were prepared and had fled the city and therefore were saved. Now, when you think about some of those signs of famines, earthquakes and pestilence, they came before AD 70. And Jesus said of them that they are the beginning of sorrows. Think about the last 20 years in the Western world, perhaps since 9-11 and the terrible events of that day. We have witnessed many famines in many countries, wars and rumours of wars, earthquakes, and of course, now we have a pandemic. Those previous events of earthquakes and famines and wars were remote from us. We didn't have to get involved too much. The recent bushfires might have alarmed us greatly, but soon got on, we soon got on with our lives. But not so with this pandemic. Life has changed for all of us. It may well be that some of those signs that Jesus gave to predict AD 70 will also be repeated in our day as we approach the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. What we can be sure of is that the prophecies that Jesus gave about the last days are upon us. These are days of distress amongst the nations, with perplexity, no way out, no escape, men's hearts failing them for fear. And we're told to lift up our heads when those days would come upon us. I want you to think about some of the changes the pandemic may well facilitate. It may well bring a realignment of nations and their allegiances one to another, especially as some nations are facing bankruptcy. And there will be a serious rethinking about the mindless globalisation we have seen, where none of our industries are producing the goods we need in this time of crisis. For those of you who know your Bibles, I'd like you to think briefly about something that happened a long time, even before Christ, and that was the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt. When God brought those plagues upon Pharaoh and his people because they would not let the children of Israel leave, the Egyptian economy was decimated. Their gods were disgraced and humbled, and the people suffered immensely under those plagues. And we have just seen the fall of the gods of the Western culture, Wealth, pleasure, sport, fashions, entertainment, tourism, all collapse in front of our eyes. But notice two things about the story of the plagues in Egypt that are important to us. Number one is, as soon as the immediate pressure was lifted, the heart of Pharaoh, and we assume his people, was hardened. And they returned to normality. When this COVID crisis abates and some normality resumes, very few will seek for a better way, for the ultimate eternal solution to mortality. 
It might just be that the resumption of some form of normal life could be the peace and safety cry that the Bible has predicted precedes the sudden arrival of Armageddon. We also remember this about the plagues, that God's people Israel were spared the last five plagues and were eventually removed to safety. So with those few thoughts about the times in which we live, I want to now talk about the world which is to come. Our God has always had a very firm purpose with our earth. When he created this earth, when God formed this earth, he had a plan in mind. And the plan is clearly outlined in his word, the Bible. As truly as I live, says God in Numbers 14, 21, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's the ultimate statement about where this world is going to end up. And Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says very similar things. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there's coming a time where God will bring this earth to a state of perfection in the knowledge of his character and purpose. To achieve this, God is going to bring upon this world a worldwide kingdom, an autocracy ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel 2 talks about our times when it says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall not be left to other people. It will not be voted out at the next election. But it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms of man, and it shall stand forever. An everlasting, God-directed, God-authorised kingdom upon the earth. When we think about that kingdom, of course, the pivotal point where this turns in world history is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ back to the earth. When he left the earth, angels said to the disciples, this same Jesus that is taken up from you will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And there are over 200 references in the New Testament alone to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But why is he coming back? Well, it says in Acts 17 verse 31, God has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he raised from the dead. And that day, we believe, is not very far away. Jesus is coming back to be the king that will reign upon God's throne over the whole earth. That's what his mother was promised. Mary was promised before the child was born. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That was in Jerusalem. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. That is the house of Israel, the Jews. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. It will not end in time, nor will it end in the territory that it rules over. Of his kingdom, no limit, no end. Now, I'm going to give you a summary of the overall picture of what God has in store for his kingdom. And then we're going to focus on one aspect, and that is the difference between today's world and the world which is to come. But here is the overall plan that God has in store for our world. Daniel 12 talks about an unprecedented time of trouble across the world. And it says in Daniel 12, verse 1 and 2, that at the same time that that time of trouble has broken out upon the world, at the same time, the resurrection of God's faithful people right from Adam onwards 
of those who have understood and tried to follow God, that resurrection will take place at the same time as the rest of this world is going into an unprecedented time of trouble, such as never was. And when you think about some of the tragedies and the disasters and the wars and the famines and all the suffering that's taken place on the earth for a time of trouble such as never was, that's not a very nice prospect for the world. There will then be the Battle of Armageddon, which the Bible describes in great detail. God will defeat the armies of the nations through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will set up one worldwide government based in Jerusalem. God's laws will then be extended to all nations. And when God's laws are obeyed, peace and prosperity will come to the world. And that reign of Christ will last for a thousand years. It's called the millennium. And it's described again very clearly in the book of Revelation. So that's the overall picture. That's the big plan that God has for our world. What I want to do now is to focus on one aspect. Is, that is how the world will change once Christ is ruling upon his throne. There's going to be this takeover of the world. Zephaniah says this, Wait upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And God's going to bring upon this world severe judgments. Why? Because men have ignored him, written him out of the picture, told everybody he doesn't exist, defied his morals and his principles. But the outcome is going to be one worldwide understanding of God. For then will I return to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. There's going to be one language and one religion that God will bring into that kingdom. There's going to be a common worship of the one true God. We're told in, 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 in Micah chapter 4, In the last days... It shall come to pass, the mountain of the house of, of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. There's going to be a temple built on the area of Jerusalem, exalted above the hills, something you can see from a very vast distance, and people will flow under it. Worldwide pilgrim, pilgrimages to that particular temple. And many nations shall come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And there's going to be pilgrimages to that place. And here is an artist's impression of what it might be like as you approach that place. The house of prayer for all nations, Jesus called it. It's a house designed to be the centrepiece of the administration of the kingdom to come. And people will want to go. We're told in Zechariah 8 verse 20 to 22, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass, that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many nations, and the inhabitants of one city shall say to another, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. There's enthusiasm in those words. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. You get an idea, don't you, of a pilgrimage being made as people ascend to that particular place to worship God and to learn of his laws to understand his ways and the ignorance that we see today, all the isms out there, socialism, communism, 
all of these humanism, modernism, all of these isms of man that man has invented for himself are going to be done away with because they will understand God. They will understand his morals and his principles. And Isaiah 25 says he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering. People are veiled from understanding the reality of what God is. And the veil spread over all nations. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and the nations shall be gathered unto it. To the throne of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And as a result of the education they will receive there, they will not walk anymore after the imagination of their evil heart. And it doesn't take much searching in modern technology to see how the imagination of the evil of men's hearts is being serviced today. No more will they walk after the imagination of their evil hearts. And so there's going to be great changes in the re-education of the nations. One religion, again, this is Isaiah 2, the same as Micah. Many people will go and say, let us go to the mountain of, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. We will walk in his path, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations. There's going to be one worldwide government, one worldwide control, one worldwide law that has to be obeyed. And he shall judge among the nations. Now look at some of the changes that will come as a result of that worldwide kingdom. Disarmament. Today we have the potential to destroy life on this planet many, many times over. But God says, I'm going to take away the weapons of war from mankind. He maketh wars to cease under the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow. He cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. And we're told in Micah, neither shall they learn war anymore. Think of what can be achieved in the earth if there are no aircraft carriers, jet fighters, airfields, navies, armies, all of the things that man spends money on today. Those resources can be much better used for the good of mankind. As a result, no more terrorism. No more wars of religion. Muslim versus Christian, Muslim versus Muslim. Catholic versus Protestant. All the terrors that have come to the world as a result of religions conflicting with each other. No more of that. Rather, there's going to be a thousand-year reign of peace and security upon the earth. It goes on to say in Isaiah, they shall beat their swords into plowshares. The ambition of the United Nations will be fulfilled. And a thousand-year reign of peace and security will come to the earth. There's going to come justice upon the earth. No corruption in high places. No Swiss bank accounts for dictators. No injustice in the court system. No greed. No more billionaires while other people starve. No more promoting sin. There's going to be justice. For evildoers shall be cut off, says Psalm 37. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For your little while... And the wicked shall not be. You shall diligently consider his place. We'll go to the places where once the wicked flourished and they won't be there. But rather the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of the peace. Tremendous to think about it, isn't it? A new world order coming. You know, in the New Testament, it's described in these terms. The times of restitution or restoration of all things spoken of by the holy prophets since the world began. 
times of restoration and refreshing that will come to the world. And I want to talk about those changes, particularly in relation to the way that men will live. You see, it said in Isaiah 65, if you just go back there, it said that there would be a rural lifestyle. Now in Isaiah 65, we have a description of the land of Israel and what it will be like in the kingdom of God. And it will be the prototype, the microcosm, the example of what can happen when a nation dedicates itself to serving God properly. They will be the example to the whole world of what God can do if you work with God. And so what we read about Israel is, 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 is typical of what will happen in the rest of the world. So we're told here in, in Isaiah 65 of a number of things that will happen. Number one is life will be greatly increased. No more children dying young. An old man who does not fail his days. Even somebody dying 100 years old would be considered to be a young person. So there's going to be a great increase in life and health in the kingdom. We're told in Isaiah 35 that the dumb shall sing, the lame shall, shall run and walk and jump. There's going to be many things healed and fixed in the kingdom of God that we can't fix today. Then it goes on to say, in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And then there's a, a very strange thing for us to comprehend, living as we do in, in this society. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. You know, we rely upon builders to come and build our homes, upon people to load up the supermarket shelves for us, but it won't be like that. You're going to have time for the days of tree, as the days of a tree, it says, are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So here's a dramatic change to life as we know it today. When the kingdom of God comes, we're going to see changes from what we see around us today. Now this is Soweto in South Africa. There are hundreds of square miles of this sort of buildings in Africa. You can see how fragile they are, built out of scrap iron, with tires on the roof and rocks on the roof to hold the roofs on. And there are millions of people that live like that in just that one city in Africa. Or like this, where you have five or six homes built in your backyard and rented out to other people. But look at the intensification that is involved in something like that. But in the more prosperous countries, we decide to go up and we build enormous cities made of glass and concrete. Or you go to Hong Kong and you see this sort of living. Is that how God created this world to be lived upon? Well, unfortunately, all of those buildings of man are going to disappear. You know, the Bible is quite clear about what's going to happen to the great towers that mankind builds. In Revelation 16, it says that when Armageddon comes, there will be a great earthquake and the cities of the nations will fall. Interesting, isn't it? Right back in the first century, it talked about the cities of the nations falling at a time when they didn't have many buildings that were very, very large and very tall. In Isaiah chapter 30, we have even a more interesting passage, a passage that talks about how men will forsake their dependence upon silver and gold. It says, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and with gold. 
gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them to the unclean, as an unclean thing and say, be gone. No more the God of wealth. No more people interested in how the stock market's traveling. No more of wondering about our superannuation. No confidence in what's in the bank. People will not depend upon the economy as we know it today. Because God will bless them. God will give you rain for the seed which you, which you sow the ground. For bread and the produce of the ground will be rich and plenteous. Your livestock will graze in large pastures. The oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder. that has been winnowed and so forth. And then it says, And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water. But look at the day that this pivots upon. It all happens in the day of great slaughter when the towers fall. And you see, the Bible has put together the fact that there's going to be a destruction of the cities of mankind and replacing it with a rural lifestyle where men will live in harmony with creation. Just some of the things we can trace through the Bibles. A great resettlement of the populations of the world out of the cities into rural living. Positive climatic changes opening up vast territories that are today desert or wasteland, that there might be farms and fields and pastures. The earth will produce abundantly, taking away the curse that came through Adam's sin. And every family will have its own inheritance. They will be given, as Israel were when they came into the land of Canaan, every family got an inheritance to farm. And men will work with nature and not plunder it as they have today. Animals will only die for sacrifices. Look what it says at the end of Isaiah 65. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. We're not going to see cattle lots. We're not going to see ships loaded up with, ships, with sheep going to the Middle East. We're not going to see animals just bred for slaughter. And this is something which the modern generation finds really hard to accept. There won't be great factories. There won't be power stations pumping out fumes into the air and burning coal. There won't be the commerce and the trade and those huge container ships that ply around the world today. We're going to have a totally different economy to what we see today. The deserts of today are going to be dramatically changed. It's amazing how much water actually exists in the Earth's crust. We call it artesian water in Australia, but it's only hardly been tapped. And when God brings that to the surface, when God opens up streams in the desert and fountains and rivers in the desert, those deserts will greatly change. Today in Australia particularly, we have vast areas of nothing that you can travel on and see for miles without even seeing a tree. And think how much God could use this area when he makes it productive. And we're told in the Bible, phrases like this, the desert will blossom as the rose. We're told that waters will break out in the wilderness and streams in the desert in Isaiah 35 and verse 6. And the parched ground shall become a pool in the thirsty land, springs of water in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And once where was a place of serpents, now going to be a place of abundant growth and verdure. And God's going to restore this earth to some of the beauty we saw in the Garden of Eden. 
Just think what it means if streams could break out in the desert and the wilderness. How much land there would be, how much fertility there would be as God takes away the curse that came upon Adam because of his sin. I want to show you something now which really crystallised for me the vision of what the kingdom might be like when it comes to the way that men will live. And I know this is very hard for those who are very fixed to the technologi technological world where everything is done by satellites, by phones, by computers and so forth. It's very hard for people who have only known that to understand that the world is a better place without the factories, without the technology and without all the things that are required to produce it. The Bible says this, my people shall dwell in peaceable habitations. Interesting, isn't it? They shall dwell in peaceable habitations. In other words, the standard of living is not going to be those huge buildings you saw. It's going to be going back to a rural lifestyle. Now, this particular photograph is taken in Germany. In a place called Gengenbach, they have recreated a 17th century village. In other words, they've brought from all over, the, over Germany buildings of that generation and created a village as it would have been in the 17th century. That's in the 1600s, before electricity was invented. And they've built these houses, furnished them, and have them on display as a working village. And it really assisted my vision to understand how men could live in the kingdom. Because people think today, without all the, the things of life, without our dishwashers and our washing machines, how could we survive? How could you get on without electricity and technology? Well, have a look at some of these houses in this place. You will notice, firstly, that they are built well apart from each other. In other words, there's space around each one of these places. You also notice that they have thatched roofs, which is a renewable product and doesn't require a factory to produce it. It's one of the byproducts of good crops. Isaiah 65 says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. Men will learn the skills that they need to construct their own houses from timber and from thatch and from other products of nature without the necessity for the factories and the power stations we see today. They shall build houses and inhabit them. There will be no more refugee camps or slums as the world has ended up with today. None of that, but rather quiet rural living in a blessed culture. You know, the Bible says this, mine elect, and this is taken from verse 22 of Isaiah 65, mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And there is something rewarding about enjoying something you have made with your own hands. And we see in these houses and these buildings that having constructed them themselves, they became houses that were very, very nice to live in. And people enjoyed the fact that they had made things themselves. And you get some idea from these pictures of what it might be like in the villages of the future. Everything made from timber. You notice that these houses are quite large. A number of these houses were built against mountainsides because they could then drive their wagons up and park them in the top loft of these buildings. Some of them had three or four stories. Some of them had cellars. Some of them had underground places to store cool things like milk and butter and so forth. But everything was made from timber. They did not need the steel factories. They did not need the things that we associate with building today. 
And so we're going to see houses made in a different way. Made by their owners, they shall not build and somebody else inhabit it. We won't have building companies going around building your houses. They shall plant their own houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant their own crops and feed themselves from their own pastures. Now, the Bible talks about the increase in productivity that's going to come upon the earth. This is Psalm 67. That thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously. See, there's the government of the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall govern the nations upon the earth. These conditions can only come when God's appointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in control. God shall bless us. Well, then the earth shall yield her increase, and God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amos adds, the plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, the crops will be so abundant, the produce of the ground so prolific, that before you've got the first crop in, it's time to start plowing for the next one. Gives you some idea of the productivity of the earth in the future. We will not need these enormous complexes of farms, huge machinery, great storage silos, and ships carting wheat and corn around the world. Everybody will produce what they need for themselves. And the Bible says, when the kingdom comes, they shall dwell every man under his own vine and his own fig tree, vegetable gardens, fruit trees, all of these things in a climate where God has blessed the world with abundance. When the curse of the ground has been removed, man will be able to feed his own family and the village will become self-sufficient and they will learn to live without electricity. You notice there are no telegraph poles in that street. But again, notice the size of the houses and the outbuildings, quite substantial. Well, how do they get by? How do they get things done? Well, they use water power. They use water wheels made out of wood. And by that, they drive the machinery they might need for some purposes like cutting the timber. There's another water wheel in purpose going there. This is inside the, the, the mill grinding the corn. Again, wood and natural stone. And this is being used to grind the corn, all being driven by water power. It might take a lot longer than the big factories to produce, but people are going to have time. That's why it says they shall have time to do these things. They shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Today we just go to the supermarket and we buy a packet of flour off the rack. But it won't be like that in the kingdom. We'll have to work with nature and with God. This is a blacksmith shop in that same village being run on water power. There's a sawmill cutting up the timber they need. Again, all run on water power. And you see here, this is in the top of one of those buildings where they bring in the wagons and, and store them out of the weather. These houses are quite substantial. You know, the making of things. It says, mine elect shall long enjoy the work of my hands. In this village, they have all kinds of crafts that they can show you, the making of shoes, the carving of timber, flowers, making of clocks, storage of things, and all sorts of things that man can make, long enjoying the work of their own hands. The kitchen, 
quite substantial, perhaps not something that you would equate to today with all our modern appliances, but nevertheless incredibly functional. And again, everything there made of timber. You see the natural light that comes in, handmade furniture. Please excuse the cross, but that was in the photograph. But there it was, handmade furniture in the, in the bedrooms. Everything handmade because people can have plenty of time to do it. Using natural light rather than electricity. But when you need a light at night, of course, there are oil lamps that can be used. And you get some idea that the standard of living, which is for us now over 400 years ago, wasn't so bad. But there wasn't the destruction of the environment that has been caused today by our materialism and our greed. Not such a bad life at all when you consider how men used to live. And you might say, well, that's almost archaic. It's almost cavemen. But what have we got today? You know, one of the interesting things about the coronavirus has been that in some cities in the world where people have been in lockdown, the air pollution that they normally associate with life has improved markedly, especially in Los Angeles. You can actually see the blue sky for once in Los Angeles because there are no cars on the road. Places in China are enjoying tremendous relief from the choking smoke that they normally have to ingest. But imagine a world with no factories, no cars, no planes, no power stations, no coal mining. We're going to see the world greatly restored to what God created it to be. You know, God says this in Revelation, the nations raged, but your wrath has come and God will destroy those. The time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God who made this world to be a beautiful place is not impressed by the fact that man has decimated it with his corruption and its industry and its greed and its materialism. A time for destroying the destroyers of the earth is about to come. No more cities polluting the environment, but man living in peaceable habitations. And today we're being buried alive in our own rubbish. Just listen to these figures. In the United States of America, they take into landfill every day 450,000 tons of rubbish into landfill. That's every day. 450,000 tons. If that wasn't bad enough, going out from New York and the cities on the East Coast, they take out in barges 18,000 tons every day and drop it into the Atlantic Ocean. 18,000 tonnes is equal to 450 blue whales or two Eiffel Towers in weight. And that goes to the bottom of the ocean every day in America, just to get rid of the rubbish. Is that the way God wants this world to be used? Will there be impacts from this sort of thing that man has done for so long? Will we be buried in our own rubbish? Well, the Bible says, None shall make them afraid. There will not be any more fear of climate change. There will not be any more fear of wars. There will not be any need of armed forces and defence forces and navies and armies. None shall make them afraid. Men will live peaceably under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you rather have, living like that or like this? 
And there are so many cities in the world that see these sort of conditions every day of the week. Is this normal? Is this what God created man to do? To fight our way through the traffic, to get to work, to try and cope with the economy and all the things that go with it, or rather to dwell in what the Bible calls peaceable habitations, where men have space, clean air, and productive ground around them. And what about the poor of this world? You know, in our country, we complain if we can't get every kind of supply and every choice that we usually have. Think how many people tonight in this world are going to bed totally hungry, totally starving. Think how many die every day of starvation, far more than coronavirus is achieving, and we do nothing about it. But there's going to be great changes to the world. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. He shall break in pieces the oppressor. He shall deliver the needy when he cries, and the poor also, and him that hath no helper. There's not going to be the great difference between the billionaires and the millionaires of this world and the thousands and millions of poor people that can't get out of the poverty trap. Everybody will have the opportunity to work with God on their own inheritance. And the Bible says that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper. Tremendous abundance coming in the earth. And the earth shall yield her increase like as never before seen in our times when God takes away the curse. Tremendous abundance coming to the world. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth on the top of the mountains. We ought to, we ought to plant crops in places we wouldn't even attempt to today. And it will grow enormous crops like the cedars of Lebanon. Tremendous results because God will bless the earth. And there's going to be great benefits of a lasting peace upon the earth. It says in Isaiah 32, the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. You will not need a great bunch of keys for your house and your car. You will not need insurance against burglars and theft because the world will be characterised by righteousness and governed properly with justice from an all-knowing and wise government headed up by Christ. And it says in Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David. That links up with the promise made to Mary. And upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And you see, God has a very distinct plan to change our world for the better and to bring that lasting peace which man so much desires. At the end of the thousand years, this is the condition of the world that the Bible describes. A time when God has made immortal all of those who have learnt his ways, followed his ways and obeyed him in the kingdom. And it says this, at the end of the thousand years, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Eventually mortality itself will be no more. No more getting old, no more getting sick, no more suffering, no more tears. 
God will perfect the world and fill it with his glory as he promised that he always would. For those of us who do understand these things, there's an invitation to be part of that future, to be part of the administration of that future if we serve God now. Look what the Bible says, where God promises to his saints, his chosen ones, the ones he gives the opportunity to share the kingdom with Christ. It says this, this is Daniel 7, verses 18 to 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Let me just explain to you, the saints of the Most High are not people who are up in heaven like Saint Teresa and Saint Nicholas and all those saints that the Catholic Church has, has said are up there looking after people. The saints are those that God has separated by the truth of his gospel to be his people, to be those who will share with Christ the kingdom. These are those who were raised when Christ returns and are made immortal that they might share with Christ the work of governing the nations and resettling the world and healing the people and teaching them how to live with God. The kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And these are beautiful verses in verse 25. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. And you see, Christ is willing to, serve, to share his kingdom with people who take notice of the gospel now. And verse 27 says, well, the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. And we believe that time is not very far away. And so, brethren and sisters and friends, there is a better hope for the world. God has made sure promises that will surely come to pass. We are wise to give heed to these things. And as we see the world increasingly in its fear and uncertainty and perplexity, let's remember those words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 21. Take heed to yourselves. Don't be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness. And particularly, if this coronavirus does pass and life gets back to some semblance of normality, don't go back to the ways of the world indulgence, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And when the day comes, we're found to be not ready for it. Christ said, watch ye therefore and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. There is a better world coming, and we can certainly be part of it. Let us rejoice in that hope and lift up our heads.